This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Uncommon Sense regulars, historian Dr Emma Shortus from RMIT University and Professor Andrew Walter from the University of Melbourne. Emma and Andrew sat down with me to reflect on the major political trends and developments of 2022 in the US, the UK, Australia and major global geopolitical flashpoints like US-China tensions over Taiwan, Russia's war against Ukraine, AUKUS, and much more. We cover the breaking news of the January 6 committee and some significant diplomatic developments for Australia. It is my absolute delight to be with you for the last hour of the show for 2022. And who better to spend it with than two of my favourite regular guests, Dr. Emma Shortus is a historian and a research fellow based at the EU Centre of Excellence at RMIT, and she often joins us to talk about US politics. And I'm also joined by Professor Andrew Walter, who is an expert in UK politics and international relations. He's based at the School of Social and Political Sciences at the University of Melbourne. And both Emma and Andrew are joining me right now to talk about US politics, UK politics, geopolitics, politics more broadly, and also if there's any relevance back to home, which I know there will be, we'll also chuck in a bit of Australian politics as well. So, without further ado, I welcome back onto the show Emma Shortus. Hi, Emma. Hi, Amy. Thanks so much for having me. A pleasure. And hello, Andrew. Welcome back. Hello, Amy. Nice to be here again. Oh, it's great to have you both. And um, yeah, I've just been dying to have a moment to sit back and reflect because it feels like we haven't had many of those in the last year, especially when we've had our catch-ups on US and UK politics. I wanted to first up jump to you, Emma, just to go with the breaking news of the moment before we get into a reflective zone. And that is, well, there are two items. One item we'll start with is the January 6th committee. That is something we've discussed on this show for quite a while. It's obviously been examining the role of Donald Trump, but also of others in his attempt to essentially overthrow the Capitol to try and take back the leadership to win at all costs, even if he didn't actually win legally, which clearly he didn't. So, Emma, now that we have at least seen the committee vote and they've basically delivered their findings and also their recommendations, what do we know now from the January 6th committee? What have been the outcomes so far? Well, it was a pretty big day for the, for the committee, Amy. You know, we've talked about it at length, I think, and at times um, it's been unclear, I suppose, what the outcomes would be or, or where this was all going. There's been so much kind of speculation, of course, swirling around it that it's difficult to kind of take out the key points. But I think today was a little bit different in that way and, and kind of truly extraordinary in that this committee, this congressional committee, has referred former President Donald Trump to the Justice, to the Department of Justice for criminal charges. And that that is quite literally extraordinary, I think, because Congress has never done that before. Congress has never um, recommended that criminal charges be brought against a former president of the United States. So this is hugely significant um, symbolically, I think, in particular for the United States, given the the historic reluctance, I suppose, to um, pursue presidents for criminal charges. And so they've recommended him specifically, they've recommended that the Justice Department pursue charges in in four areas that have a little bit of esoteric language, but in obstructing Congress, so in obstructing specifically the investigation, for assisting, um, supporting and even comforting an insurrection, for conspiring to make false statements to the committee and conspiring to defraud the United States in in the sense that Trump was conspiring really to defraud the United States of its legitimate president in in Mm. now Joe Biden. They've also raised the possibility of the Justice Department pursuing seditious conspiracy charges, which is incredibly serious given that, you know, we're talking about an ex-president. So this is huge. You know, a lot a lot, of course, remains to be um, remains to be played out. They haven't dropped their the actual final report yet. That's coming, I think, on um, Thursday our time. And of course, this then has to go to the Justice Department and see how they will respond. But this is really, I, I think, I think it's really significant. I think this is the is Congress, the committee, making an, a really definitive statement about 
Donald Trump and his conduct. You know, Liz Cheney said unequivocally today that he is unfit to hold office. So, so this is Congress, I think, drawing a real, drawing a line for Donald Trump that I think hasn't been drawn like this before. Yeah. And also we did hear some reporting around or coming from this report, the January 6th committee report, saying that they discovered that lawyers connected to Donald mm. Trump sought to influence witnesses who were giving testimony to the committee. They were seeking to influence them through job offers mm. and advice, including telling them that it's okay to lie to investigators. I guess it's not that surprising when you hear it based on previous behaviour, but it still is kind of shocking to hear that uh, that that kind of conduct was happening and it was obviously quite easy to discover. Yeah, I think that's the thing that's shocking about it is that it's so brazen. Mm. You know, there's such an assumption on the part of these actors that they're above the law, that they can get away with this kind of behaviour because they're powerful and because they're rich and because they're white, of course, as well. And and it is, you know, I think that was really striking from the committee. There's this kind of open secret that that the Trump campaign or, or coming from Trump supporters were paying for lawyers for some of these witnesses. Some witnesses were choosing to go for these paid lawyers rather than the free lawyers that the committee would provide. And the suggestion, as you said, Amy, that, you know, key witnesses were, and we're, I think we're not, haven't been confirmed who these witnesses were, but, you know, essentially they were offered um, cushy jobs by by yeah. Trump supporters or, or Trump affiliates in exchange for, you know, I suppose softening their testimony. And the fact that this is, you know, the committee is well aware of this and, and much of this has also been referred to criminal prosecutors, you know, sometimes in at the state level in places like Georgia, the, the whole committee has has resulted in upwards of a thousand criminal cases, and again, you know, just the fact that it's so brazen is really extraordinary. And that was what was striking to me today as well is that it's actually, you know, for all of this kind of a thousand criminal cases and you know hundreds of thousands of pages of evidence, and this report will be huge as well. It's it's actually pretty simple when it comes down to it, and and pretty much everybody knew this. You know, Donald Trump knew that he lost an election and he didn't care. He chose to try and overthrow um, and, and overturn a legitimate democratic election and he knew what he was doing and the people around him knew what he was doing. It's actually that simple. And I think the committee's done a really, really impressive job of laying that out clearly with, without, I think, simplifying, you know, without shying away from that complexity underneath it, the message is really clear. And one of the quotes from the report, when they're talking about the aim, they say that, quote, the very purpose of the plan was to prevent the lawful certification of Joe Biden's election. So as you say, they're super clear that this is not just a mob that were upset mm. about Trump losing an election. There was clearly an aim and a plan and a motivation behind the violent actions on that very day when the, the results were being certified you know, that there seems to be some concerted planning and certainly at least that Donald Trump wasn't trying to stop them from doing it, mm. was he? No, absolutely. And I think that's what the committee's done so well. It's laid out so clearly that there was a kind of multifaceted plan to, mm. to overturn a legitimate democratic election um, that turned into effectively a kind of rolling coup attempt. And the committee has a outlined so clearly how that actually began on election night in 2020, you know, when it became clear that Donald Trump was losing, his efforts to overturn that result began on election night. You know, they started with his tweets about stopping the count and saying the election was um, was a fraud and then it moved on to, you know, his efforts in places like Georgia to influence the Attorney General there to find him 11,000 votes to overturn an election. And then that shifted to pressure on... Vice President Mike Pence, to, to, as, who was charged with overseeing the, elect, the certification of electoral college results. And so this kind of rolling coup attempt is then culminating in the Capitol riots on the 6th of January in 2021. But it's part of a long, a kind of longer um, set of plans that Donald Trump was at the centre of and was kind of orchestrating and had people around him, like his lawyer John Eastman, acting knowingly against the law in order to attempt to overturn this election. And I think, again, you know, the committee has laid that out so clearly and I think has also been so clear about how there has to be accountability for that when you have an ex-president still talking quite recently about terminating the US Constitution. There has to be accountability because otherwise it will happen again.
Absolutely. This is not just a a kind of process that needs to be undertaken Mm. for no kind of specific reason. It has very clear reasons. It has a lot of consequences if it ever happened again or that people tried to do this. And there's no kind of guarantee it wouldn't necessarily happen again. And obviously, I guess it depends on whether the recommendations about criminal charges being brought against Mm. Donald Trump are actually brought. And then what happens with that what are the potential consequences or outcomes for Donald Trump if he was pursued for these criminal charges? Does that mean he couldn't run again as president or as a presidential candidate? Yeah. So if 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 he was convicted of federal crimes, then he could not he could not serve um, as president. He could not serve in federal office. And so the consequences are very significant for Donald Trump mm-hmm. in that sense, and and also potentially result in in jail time. But I think you know, as you say, we've we've got a long way to go before that point. And and historically, Donald Trump has been this kind of to use an old phrase, a Teflon president. You know, he's been he's been pursued criminally and civilly throughout his entire career, and he's managed to shake off those charges and those um, those cases consistently. You know, so I guess history would suggest that he may be able to do that again. But I think the the seriousness of these charges, you know, the fact that the committee is raising the potential for seditious conspiracy, suggests that you know if they if the department does go after him, and I think I think they will. I I would be very surprised if they didn't pursue charges against the president. That has huge consequences for Trump, but also as you say, Amy, for the for the American electoral landscape because it means Trump can't run. It means he can't serve as president. What does that mean for the Republican Party? What does that mean for future elections in the United States? How will Trump's base respond? How will the Republican leadership respond? You know, there are so many questions. And again, like I'm lucky I'm a historian. I don't have to try and predict. <laughs> but my prediction is, what, you know, if I'm willing to make a prediction, it would be that the Justice Dep- the Department of Justice under Merrick Garland will, I think, pursue this criminal investigation. And it, it does also make you think, will Donald Trump do what he does, which is mm. to try and delay, delay, delay all the processes so that that can't be finished by the time this presidential election comes around because he's the master of delaying things. He also seems to be preparing for a presidential run, not only because, you know, he gave a speech saying he, you know, is planning to run, but also he, he released this absurd video that I thought was fake over the weekend. I was, I'm like, I'm sure this isn't real. Uh, Super uh, dumb. Yeah. Oh my god. I don't. It's hard to explain just how bad it is. I really hope people watch it just to enjoy it. But mm-hmm. um, you know, he was actually promoting virtual cards, like almost baseball cards, yeah. but virtual cards of Trump. And that he, you you could potentially win a prize and have a dinner with him or a Zoom mm-hmm. call with him or go to one of his beautiful golf courses or whatever. So clearly he's um, fundraising and apparently they were going for like $100 US or something for a, a fake card that doesn't exist, like a virtual digital card. Like, Emma, what is this? <laughs> I, I wish I, I knew, Ow. Amy Yates. It's it is wild, isn't it? You know, honestly, I don't I don't really understand. I, they're sort of um, limited edition. He described them as kind of like digital baseball cards, and they are that those kind of ridiculous images of Trump, kind of dressed up as a superhero, that have kind of very little resemblance to the actual reality of his appearance. But he, you know, he they sold out. He he's made millions mm. again from from these, as you say. You know, he he's fundraising in his very particular way, and and it, it's just I think another indication um, and and a reminder that we need uh, just about how rusted on Trump's base is. You know, he has this core of support that is, you know, far from the majority of the American people, but he has this kind of cult like base of support that he can. He can kind of manipulate and deploy when he wants to, and and mm. that's what happened on January six. You know that that was the core of Trump supporters being mobilised by Trump, by Trump bringing them to to Washington and speaking to them in this coded language, and these weird kind of digital baseball cards are kind of part of that. Trumpian, you know, Joe Biden's called it semi-fascist. I would just kind of, I would just call it fascist. Mm. This Trumpian fascist kind of aesthetic that he has cultivated really carefully and and to great effect and and that's why i think you know we have to be so careful about kind of 
predicting the demise of Trump when this is all tied up, Amy, as he said, in his his presidential bid and his ability to raise funds for that will be critical and also, you know, potentially will be critical in him buying time in him. And I think that is his plan, you know, to win legitimately or otherwise a presidential election to get into office and then claim immunity from prosecution. Um, and so, Again, it's this kind of weird alternate universe that that Trump has constructed that is is really um, disconcerting and and weird to watch from the outside. But that strength that he has in that base and the way he's reshaped, reshaped the Republican Party in his image is really critical to understanding. And you know, the Republicans have got control of the House of Representatives from January next year. So again, you know, who knows what they will do in order to support Trump going forward. Yeah, no, watch this space. And speaking of uh, quote-unquote strong men, or at least they see themselves as strong men, we did have the demise of Scott Morrison this year. Obviously, Donald Trump lost his election. Uh, we also saw Boris Johnson booted out of number 10 by his own party eventually after a very long period of Will they? Won't they? How many letters have gone into um, the special committee to get rid of the prime minister? I guess we thought that might be the end of the chaos, Andrew, and it seemed like maybe the adults would be in charge again, but that was also short-lived and we then saw a succession of leadership. So within a four-month period, the UK has had three prime ministers. Finally, it seems to have landed on one, but could you take us through what the the kind of turbulence of UK politics and what it says about, I guess, the leadership qualities or capabilities right now within the Tory party? Yeah, well, look, there are, Amy, there are a lot of parallels uh, with the United States and a, and a lot of differences, of course, because we have two here. Uh, in this case, we have two uh, former leaders uh, with uh, undying self-belief and unjustified self-belief in their political skills who, who eventually uh, came to a sticky end, uh, one at the hand, Boris Johnson of their own party and the other, Donald Trump, at the hand of the electorate. Um, but the differences are really between the United States and the UK are quite extraordinary in this respect. As you say, um, 2022 has has felt like, uh, at least for me, like I've been sitting on one of those new Chinese hypersonic missiles speeding around the earth. And um, it's gone so quickly that uh, it's easy to forget that only a year ago, uh, news about Partygate in the UK was breaking. Um, the the secret parties that Downing Street was having while the Queen was, you know, by herself uh, in a chapel in Windsor mourning the death of uh, Prince Philip uh, and things like that going on. So Downing Street was breaking all the rules that it was insisting the rest of Britain abide by uh, during the depths of the pandemic. And yes, it took a long time for the Tory party to wake up uh, to the fact that Boris Johnson was unfit and a and a charlatan and a fraud. Um, and eventually they got rid of him and then we got something worse. Um, we, I should also say, you know, in terms of um, future possible um, sort of legal investigations, uh, the British uh, Parliament uh, is, still, is still next year going to have an investigation of Boris Johnson, uh, who continues, uh, I, I think, to harm some ambition uh, politically, as we saw only a few months ago when when Liz Truss crashed and burned. Um, so we'll see how that pans out. So that's going to be interesting as well. In in that sense, Britain's one step ahead of the United States in that, uh, you know, a, a prime minister accused of misdemeanours uh, is actually going to face uh, an effective trial of sorts. So yeah, I mean it's been a roller coaster ride uh, for Britain as well, and you know Liz Truss, uh, who had what 49 days in office, uh, feels a bit like an historical blip now, but um, but it was pretty consequential, and we're still living through some of the consequences. And we've now got Rishi Sunak in charge, um, and it's looking pretty shambolic still. Yeah. Well, we did see that budget eventually come to fruition, the kind of reset budget. The, and, the mini um, budget. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that uh, I was, you know, intrigued to see what would happen, you know, what the strategy would be. What's your take on it, Andrew? Just how different is it from the trust quarting mini budget? 
Well, the the trust quarting mini budget, uh, and by the way, Liz Trust seems unrepentant and uh, seems to be leaking to the press that uh, basically their fiscal strategy, which involved serial unfunded, large unfunded tax cuts uh, in the range of £40 billion uh, that the markets took deep fright at, uh, there was nothing really fundamentally wrong with that strategy and that uh, it was undermined in effect by people like Rishi Sunak briefing the markets that this was uh, unsustainable and would lead to a bad reaction by the markets. Um, So Rishi Sunak having now been placed in charge uh, somewhat, uh, well, in terms of his own party base, reluctantly, uh, they had to return uh, to the the so-called safe pair of hands that Rishi Sunak represents um, and uh, with his chancellor of the Exchequer Jeremy Hunt, uh, you know, another safe pair of hands. Um, so basically, they reversed everything uh, that Rishi, that uh, Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng introduced back in September. They've said that Britain needs to tighten its belt, live within its means. Um, though how much uh, of a of a reversal of fortunes uh, this represents is is as yet unclear. It's probably likely that uh, the situation is far worse than even they. They are willing to tell the public. But, uh, you know, we'll see. Um, it hasn't, it's it certainly restored some sense of stability uh, in the markets, uh, but it's come at pretty severe cost. Uh, they're having, uh, for example, both to raise taxes, but also to deal at the moment with a series of rolling strikes uh, by workers in critical infrastructure, nurses who've never gone on strike before in 106 years of. Uh, I think the Royal College of Nursing's history. Um, uh, There's ambulance drivers next. There's rail workers over Christmas and so on. So Britain is starting to feel very much like the early 1970s when, as many people have said, Britain doesn't seem to be working anymore. Yeah, yeah. And one other area that struck me in a couple, like in the recent weeks at least, within Parliament and discussions about how the UK Parliament should be, would be, could be. And certainly I know that this change of leadership multiple times has really been undermining trust in government, as well as even just the actions of Boris Johnson during the lockdowns. I know that certainly didn't do much Mm. um, (laughs) help to the perception of politicians and politics. But it seems like UK Labor leader Keir Starmer has put forward a proposal to abolish the House of Lords and replace it with a new elected chamber as part of his plan to restore trust in politics. It seems like he's kind of edging slightly away from it now. I'm not quite sure. He, he <laughs> maybe doesn't want to get embroiled in a new controversy. But um, what are your thoughts on that proposal? Because it is a pretty radical one in the sense of, you know, the tradition of British Parliament. I guess... Brave Sir Keir is trying to find ways of seeming a bit more interesting uh, mm. than he is perceived by, I think, a lot of voters. Um, I mean, it, it's sort of amusing that someone with an antiquated title, uh, Sir Keir, um, is is offering to get rid of uh, the antiquated titles and political positions of a whole bunch of other people in the upper house. Of course, it looks very distracting to, uh, I think, a lot of members of his party who think that, you know, this looks largely symbolic. Um, what on earth would they replace the House of Lords with um, and and the, the kinds of debates that would surround that. Uh, Britain, as we've seen uh, with two significant royal deaths uh, over the past year, um, and of course the uh, the famous uh, Meghan and Harry show, um, still remain deeply attached to their traditional antiquated institutions. And so just like uh, the January January the 6th committee in the United States, uh, they may be picking a fight with uh, a set of institutions and voters and so on that that is going to be pretty tricky and the territory is treacherous. So, you know, Sakia might be better off sticking to practical measures, uh, policy measures that actually have concrete uh, uh, you know, 
concrete relevance to people facing 14% inflation, energy bills going through the roof because they've backed off, the mini budget has backed off on on extended subsidies uh, to the household sector and uh, industry and energy terms. Um, and, you know, these sorts of trouble, uh, you know, the, the public service seeming uh, not to be able to cope, uh, healthcare system uh, on the verge of breakdown and all of these things. So, you know, where are the, f and, and of course, labour policy on the strikes is rather unclear because they fear that, uh, you know, outright support for the unions uh, who are going on strike over Christmas may rapidly turn unpopular. And so they don't quite know what to do. So this, to me, looks like a slightly distracting strategy uh, to focus on, you know, a bunch of antiquated overprivileged lords who, uh, you know, let's face it, didn't, didn't do a lot um, over the past uh, seven or eight years to, uh, to get Britain out out of a series of disastrous political developments. Um, and so, um, you know, although there are good reasons perhaps to think about reform of the House of Lords, it's probably not the most pressing issue on the political agenda. Yeah, unsurprisingly. Now, Emma, I wanted to jump to a development which will also clearly have repercussions for a number of issues that we've seen playing out across a number of years, in fact. One of these major developments is that uh, former Prime Minister Kevin Rudd is now going to be, or the government has announced that they are going to appoint Kevin Rudd to become Australia's next ambassador to the United States. And they've also then announced that Heather Ridout, a well-known business person and former CEO and chair, that she will become Australia's Consul General in New York and is the first woman to be appointed to the role. So we do have some new developments in the diplomatic sphere, and diplomacy at the moment is quite important, as we've seen with developments around the relationship between the US, Australia and China, with Penny Wong heading across to China right now, in fact, which is quite a significant moment too. But I wanted to get your reflections on that development and also then how that might influence some of the diplomatic problems that are currently on the plate of any ambassador to the United States. Probably number one or one quite high up would be AUKUS and another would also be Julian Assange. Yeah, the uh, the former prime minister is going to be quite busy, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. this is quite a quite a new development. Um, I you know I went into a meeting this morning and then I've, I've come out of it and kind of seen this announcement about Kevin Rudd. Though there have been rumours for I think you know at least a month that that he would be appointed to this position, and it and it does kind of track historically that former leaders of the Labor Party um, and and even the Liberal Party are appointed to this ambassadorship in in Washington. You know, Kim Beasley is the the obvious example. I think Rudd, you know, it will be so interesting to watch how Rudd approaches this position, you know, given I, I suppose his, um, you know, his relationships or his, his kind of claim to, to knowledge about China in particular. And I'm still, I'm still kind of mulling over, I suppose, what kind of signal this sends around that that triangle that's that we've got going on because you know with Penny Wong going to China um, as you say Amy even today to to reinstate the foreign and strategic dialogue with China which has been on hold since 2018 you know this is a significant development and I think shows at least a willingness on the part of um, Penny Wong's ministry if nothing else to listen to those um, signals from China about wanting to mark the the anniversary of 50 years of diplomatic relations with Australia on the importance of symbolism, but also being open to communication channels beyond questions of security. And I think Rudd, you know, potentially could play a really positive role there in brokering a relationship. You know, he's just written a book or relatively recently written a book about China and about the avoidable war. You know, I think Kevin Rudd is genuinely committed to finding peaceful resolutions to detailed negotiations. I think as always with, with Kevin Rudd, you know, you have to wonder how much personality and how much ego will, will get in the way of that, um, to put it to put it bluntly. Um, he, you know, he is a man of big personality and big ego and how that will fly in Washington I think will be really interesting um, to watch. And I think, you know, there do seem to be – tensions might be too strong a word, but within the Australian government there are different 
somewhat different tracks happening, I think, between particularly between foreign affairs and defence in the Australian government. You know, we were just I was just talking about Penny Wong going to China and, and also Wong's pursuit of a quite a different kind of foreign affairs and diplomacy for Australia, you know, through her things like consideration and integration of Indigenous diplomacy and what that would mean for Australia's role in the world. So you have that on the one hand, but then you have a defence department under Richard Miles kind of pursuing this kind of almost embarrassing, I think, subservience to the United States and particularly to the kind of security apparatus of the United States. So how Kevin Rudd kind of navigates, I suppose, between all that will be will be really, really interesting um, to watch and whether he can or is even interested in broadening the relationship in in kind of seeing the alliance as more than just a kind of I suppose, the function of the, the American military-industrial complex, that, that for me will be the thing to watch around, around Kevin Rudd. Yeah, and I also note that he's president and CEO of the Asia Society, mm. which is a significant group and they, it's kind of, I guess, a think tank in a way um, based out of the US. So he has kind of had his finger in lots of different pies around the big thinking and the, the issues about big power, strategic competitions. Um, I also, you know, was interested in Anthony Albanese saying, well, look, you need to trust me. I'm having conversations with the US about Julian Assange. Now you just need to believe that stuff is happening behind the scenes and Mm. we're pushing for a resolution to this. And obviously both the UK and the US have a role here because the US are pushing for his extradition and the UK are the ones currently holding him Mm. in a high security prison, approving that extradition. So, you know, there is a bit of a stalemate where diplomacy certainly could shift things if you had the right people and you had, I guess, the right political conditions. Do either of you think that there is a chance that Anthony Albanese is really speaking truth here and and that there are any kind of diplomatic moves to resolve the Julian Assange question? I I guess I wish I I knew. It's also relevant, perhaps, that uh, Stephen Smith, the former foreign and defence minister under Kevin Rudd's government and Julia Gillard, um, is about to become the ambassador to the UK here. So Albanese will be able to draw on both Kevin Rudd and and Stephen Smith. Stephen Smith, a, a more naturally, uh, a, a more natural team player, I guess, mm. than someone like <laughs> Kevin Rudd, shall we say. Um, so, uh, well, he navigated- was a very good minister. <laughs> yes, yeah, um, he was. And, uh, you know, so I think, um, you know, look, there are problems, I think, with these political appointments uh, to senior amb- ambassadorial mm-hmm. roles. Um, but I guess in this kind of tricky situation, it, it does have some advantages uh, because both of these people um, in in these ambassadorial positions in Washington and London will be, will, you know, obviously directly have the ear of uh, the prime minister and, and I guess the foreign minister as well. And, but this is a tricky and fluid territory. And uh, again, the, the AUKUS deal, I think, between the UK, the, uh, Australia and the United States, um, I, I guess, projects to the rest of the world some degree of solidarity between these uh, uh, Anglo-American uh, powers, uh, one of them, of course, far more important than the other two. Um, but there are also some pretty severe tensions between them. Um, I mean, not just on China and how to treat China. And of course, Penny Wong is trying at the same time to reassure China that, that the Labour government is very different uh, to the Morrison government and we can have a working a constructive relationship with China at the same time as a China hawk, such as uh, Kevin Rudd is going to Washington. Um, but there are a whole whole bunch of other problems as well to do with America's trade policy and growing protectionism, uh, concerns in the British case about uh, Northern Ireland and the Northern Irish Protocol. Uh, so there are a lot of there are a lot of tensions that need to be managed and that will require some pretty deft diplomacy over the next year. And I think it is important just to dwell on the fact that, as Emma mentioned, you know, tomorrow is the 50th anniversary where 
Australia established that formal diplomatic recognition of the People's Republic of China under Gough Whitlam. So it is a very special moment. It is a moment that China has been talking about for quite a long time as being symbolically important to them. I think it should be to us as well, despite recent history. Do you think that Rishi Sunak has a more softened approach to the China question than perhaps Liz Truss might? It's difficult to say again. I, you know, I think uh, Britain, Britain too, is in a in a conflicted mood uh, regarding China. There's ongoing discussion within the government, uh, within the Conservative Party, indeed amongst the Labour Party as well, about whether China should be explicitly named as a strategic threat, uh, or whether you know softer language. Uh, peer competitor, this sort of language. It's clear that the United States has shifted dramatically towards describing China as a strategic threat over the past few years. And there's a there's a deep red line of consistency there between the Trump administration and the current Biden administration. I think both for Australia and Britain, um, they're much more in two minds. And I think that would also include Rishi Sunak and those surrounding him. Um, not an outright China hawk, uh, increasingly skeptical about China and China's rise and particularly under Xi Jinping. Uh, but at the same time, you know, Britain's economic situation is pretty appalling. Um, Britain needs foreign investment. Um, and so while it's been tightening up its scrutiny of, say, inward investment uh, by the Chinese in Britain in critical infrastructure and technology sectors. At the same time, you know, the, the whole global Britain agenda under Brexit has tried to maintain that Britain is open for business. Um, and so these sorts of contradictions are not easily managed. And it's the kind of contradiction, too, that the Australian government um, is facing as we speak. Mm -hmm. And Emma, there have been some interesting remarks here locally, especially from the Consul General Zhao Limin from the People's Republic of China on the 12th of December. They and he hosted a reception celebrating the 50th anniversary of the establishment of diplomatic relations between our two countries. And he said a really interesting thing, which I wanted to quote. He said, the Chinese sage Confucius once said, at 50, one knows the destiny of heaven. After half a century of trials and tribulations, China-Australia relations should be more mature and stable. I really thought that was quite a revealing comment because it's really mm. saying, look at our long civilization and history. You know, we have all of this wisdom to draw on from our many years of history. And look at Confucius saying at 50 years, we should be more advanced, more wise, more mature. And I just thought that was quite a, you know, it was both a positive remark, but also kind of a little jab to say, well, come on, we could both be doing better here. Why have we got to this position? Um, mm. And obviously, I'm sure Labor and the Liberals would say, well, probably Labor more than the Liberals, that both have a role to play and both parties can take some of the blame. But I wondered, what do you think about that? And given your comments about Australia's kind of dogged pursuit of closer ties to the US through AUKUS, what does that mean for the Australia-China relationship then if, if this continues, if the escalation continues? Because mm. it seems like there is, on the one hand, Penny Wong saying we need to not get into a confrontation and on the other hand we're quite literally preparing for the confrontation. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you're right to point that out, Amy, because those those two things can't really be reconciled. And I think everybody, you know, especially the Chinese governments and the Australian government are, are well aware of that. And so it's so interesting to hear, you know, the Consul General use the word stability because that's being echoed by Penny Wong and the Australian government, you know, this attempt, intent to find stability or to stabilise the relationship. And, and I think, you know, viewed within the context of, of Albanese kind of um, having meetings with Chinese leadership, with Penny Wong being there and meeting with the Chinese Minister for Foreign Affairs, that kind of, that is a shift, I think, in rhetoric and a, and a, a I think a demonstration of willingness, particularly on the part of the Australian government to listen, you know, to be open, um, to hear those, I suppose, indications from the Chinese government that it, it wants to mark these symbolic events, it wants to use them to stabilise the relationship and to move forward, I suppose, in the kind of diplomatic relations. But 
that's all well and good. You know, that, that is important. That symbolism is important. That rhetoric is important. But if on the side of, on the other side of that, you know, as Andrew was talking about, we're, we're kind of pursuing AUKUS, the, the revival of the Anglosphere is kind of going full steam ahead. Um, you know, we're talking about acquiring more military um, weaponry and equipment from the United States ever more, you know, kind of this consistent doubling down of this um, security enmeshment between Australia and the United States. We can't reconcile those two things. And I think you can't kind of pursue that more mature relationship with China while that is happening, because, you know, that's the reality of policy um, in in deep contrast or in, in stark contrast to the rhetoric that is coming out of, of the Australian government and, and even sometimes on occasion the, the Biden administration. And so until until that changes, until and unless that changes, I think, and, and more broadly until the Australian government, and they've done this consistently, stop appro- stops approaching our relationship with the United States fearfully, you know, so much of the, the basis for that relationship is fear. It's fear, you know, is projected onto the Chinese um in particular at the moment, but it's driven by fear. And I think to, to go back to an earlier conversation, you know, that's why there's no kind of aggression or, or kind of moral stance coming from the Australian government around Julian Assange, who is an Australian citizen, because of fear, because Australian governments have been, you know, for the last several decades afraid that if they push the Americans in any way on anything, then the Americans will abandon us. And I think that, that fundamentally it kind of explains the instability and the immaturity of Australia's relationship with China, but also how the Australian government approaches other issues like Julian Assange, which unfortunately I think is just such a terribly apt symbol for the way that American power behaves when it is threatened and a a reminder that Australian governments need that Australia is not immune from that. Indeed, yeah. And certainly it's something that we need to keep in our, the front of our minds when we're seeing reporting on this issue as well, because it's not something that's necessarily raised when mm. the commentary is being made, at least not in mainstream media. So it's something that we need to think critically about for ourselves uh, and not let others do that for us. Emma, I also wanted to bring in here with you and Andrew the presence of COVID, which hasn't gone away in Australia, it hasn't gone away anywhere else in the world, um, unlike what some people predicted would happen, and we all knew that was a load of cold wallet. Um, interestingly, when I just checked the stats in the United States, the recorded cases since the beginning of the pandemic is now at 99.6 million. That's just the recorded cases. 1.1 million total deaths in the United States. And there was just recently a report from the CDC saying that through death certificate analysis, they have discovered that long COVID has played a part in at least 3,544 deaths in the US since January 2020. So, you know, has it gone away as Joe Biden has finally admitted the pandemic is actually still happening? And I was interested to see that he plans to reopen a partnership with the US Postal Service to mail free at-home COVID-19 rapid antigen tests to households that request them. And that was a very popular policy that existed early on in the pandemic. He's bringing it back. I know that the US and the UK are moving into their winter times. But it stands in stark contrast to the Australian government who is winding back PCR testing, who is making everyone pay for rats mostly and really is pretending that COVID doesn't exist anymore. And I just wondered what your thoughts are on that, Emma, and then we'll jump over to Andrew. Yeah, I, I, it's so interesting, isn't it, Amy? Because it, this is li- like literally, I do so much commentary on the US. You know, my phone's been ringing nonstop today because of January 6th. But you are the only person who is asking me about COVID and, and kind of health in the US generally or asking me about Biden's COVID policies. You're the only one who, mm. who's talking about this. And I think that's indicative of a kind of broader media landscape, not just here, but in the United States, where Biden is reinstating that that rat um, test program, which is really interesting. I think that, you know, he's taking that step. And I think it's, you're right, Amy, it's because the US is moving into winter in an already, you know, Andrew was talking about a broken health system in the, in the UK. It's no different, I think, 
in the United States, but it's just this just isn't in the in the news cycle, and I think COVID has kind of been integrated into the broader health crisis in the United States, where disease, long term disease, long term illness, is just kind of endemic. I think in the United States, and is accepted as kind of part of the the general the sort of civilizational landscape, I suppose, of the United States, where it's just part of existence. And where COVID does come into the news cycle, it's around, you know, Elon Musk tweeting stuff about Anthony Fauci and how he needs to go to jail. So it's just kind of been integrated into this right-wing narrative about big government. And, you know, maybe that's part of the reason, I suppose, that Democrats in particular are, are, are not really wanting to talk about it and why the media is not willing to talk about it at all. But, you know, again, it's just so interesting, Amy, that we, we just don't get asked about it at all. I'm not sure if that's your experience, Andrew, in the UK, but certainly mine for the for US politics. Yeah. Look, I, you know, I think there's lockdown and mask wearing fatigue. Uh, we can see it on the streets in, in Melbourne um, as much as anywhere else, uh, you know, either in the UK or the United States. And uh, for most politicians, I think they're just unwilling to take measures that they wouldn't have blinked at taking a couple of years ago. Um, so it's also worth noting that on the um, on the global map of uh, incidents of COVID uh, that you find in the on the front page in the New York Times, if you go on the site, um, Australia is about as red as it gets. Um, mm. Now, of course, we don't know. The, the recorded cases of COVID are only the tip of the iceberg, presumably, because most people simply are not bothering to uh, call up their health service when they when they test positive on a, on a rat um, and, and say that they've got it. Uh, I know many people in Australia who have it. But Australia also is not not returning uh, to serious measures. Um, so there's a there's a kind of element of denial, I think, in in the political system collectively, and it's not just the these Anglosphere countries either. And uh, you know, I, I don't I don't know where we go from here really, because um, you know the politics of COVID have become so toxic, uh, particularly in the United States, of course. But uh, but no one in Australia or the United States seems to be willing uh, to take serious measures either for fear of uh, political backlash. So um, uh, you know, again, twenty. We'll just have to see, I guess, how the the pandemic pans out. There's a lot of Schadenfreude going going around at the moment with respect to. Uh, sh- uh, Xi Jinping's reversal of his COVID zero policy, um, and again, particularly in the Anglosphere, um, and projections from serious outlets, uh, including the US government, that we could see upwards of a million or one and a half million deaths in China um, over the next uh, few months. Um, we, we will have to see, but that would be a catastrophic development in China, which still has a healthcare system that's far worse than even the British NHS. Um, the Australian healthcare system, by the way, isn't in great shape either. Uh, they've got massive shortage of healthcare staff, and this is partly you know, a result of COVID and the burnout um, that people are suffering uh, in the medical profession here. So none of us uh, are well positioned for any resurgence, um, particularly not the Chinese, but we shouldn't be complacent um, in the more developed countries either. No, well, it will affect supply chains as well. If you have your workforce sick, a lot of things will affect us. So I think China was doing us a favour by limiting transmission. No one is suggesting lockdowns again, which is what I get so frustrated by because everyone assumes that that's what public health means. All, All anyone is suggesting is to wear a mask in indoor spaces and stay home if you're sick and test. Really simple things, opening a window, These are not radical government big brother measures. I'm very frustrated at that. But I'm also frustrated at the reporting from The Guardian this morning in Australia because even they are pushing that line that things have changed, COVID is milder now, people aren't getting as sick and dying. Well, as Andrew's just pointed out, that's not true. Even in Australia, that's not true. So uh, it's very disappointing to see that, you know, across the board in all media. Just, just on mask wearing, Amy. I mean, you, you've no doubt experiences. I'm sure Emma has as well. Um, you know, over the past year, mask wearing on public transport in in Melbourne yeah. being compulsory, and you know, I, I get on the tram and I'm I'm the only one on it wearing a mask, and mm. there's just no enforcement. So, it's it's not just a matter of uh, healthcare measures such as mask wearing, but uh, the the public sector, the government has essentially given up on enforcement. And so, you know, it creates a collective action problem. 
Yep. No, it's absolutely true. There needs to be some kind of signal to show that, you know, you need to do the right thing, whether that's through positive messaging, which is missing right now, or through enforcement or both. It's very, very disappointing. I just wanted to close out the conversation because I did mention the war in Ukraine. I know I'm probably going to skip over a whole range of issues like Roe v. Wade, which we've discussed in the past, Emma, and also the Rwanda judgment from the High Court, Andrew, overnight, where the High Court ruled that it's uh, essentially legal for the UK to send refugees to Rwanda. It does have a lot of echoes with Australian politics. <laughs> but obviously the, the war in Ukraine is a big one and certainly the UK and the US have a role there to play. I just wanted to get a sense from you both just to kind of close out the chat. Where do you think this war is going to go in the next few months and what kind of role does big powers like the US and the UK and others have to play in it? Look, I I mean, I guess I'd start with saying that, you know, I'm certainly no expert in the war. I think it will be really um, critical to watch what happens in the United States with the when the new Congress is is signed in in January, because particularly in the House of Representatives, there are some very vocal, um, very far right representatives who are anti providing support to Ukraine that, you know, as the Ukrainians themselves are continuously outlining, they need that support from from the United States and Europe in order to to continue to, to fight. And so I think that will be a really critical development. But I think, you know, it will also be so critical to watch, and, and Andrew's a better um, better informed on this than me, the way that this, in the in the kind of longer term, the way that this conflict has the potential to, to really just radically reshape Europe and the European Union in particular. You know, I was reading um, Adam Tooze, who's an economic historian, has an, an excellent piece on this around the way, you know, potential Ukrainian membership of the EU could reshape the political landscape so dramatically in Europe. And so, you know, geopolitically, I think the consequences of this conflict are are far reaching. And, you know, some commentators have even gone so far to say as kind of epoch shifting, you know, that this single signals the end of the post-Cold War era. I'm not sure yet. You know, I think we should reserve judgment, but but the consequences are certainly significant. Yeah. Andrew? Yeah. um, I I think the EU uh, and Europe's collective response will be crucial here. Of course, the United States has led uh, the effort, particularly uh, in terms of uh, warfighting material support uh, for Ukraine. Um, But clearly, uh, Mr. Putin um, is attempting to use refugees, uh, Ukrainian refugees, or something like 8 million in the EU uh, as a political weapon. Uh, He's bombing energy infrastructure structure during a a harsh winter in in the Ukraine that's going to last for some months yet. So, uh, you know, he's he's in this for the long haul, I think, unfortunately, because he has so much personally invested in this war that he chose, um, that it's crucial uh, that he test uh, the West's patience and and um, support for Ukraine to the to the limit so so we will see that that's we don't know yet how that will pan out uh, there's a lot of pressure I think in Europe uh, to start softening but we will see how that progresses through February and March mm. thank you both it's just been so fun chatting with you about these topics some which are quite dire but it's always really enjoyable to speak with you both because you're always so thoughtful and nuanced and uh, highly intelligent individuals. So thank you both, Andrew and Emma, for joining me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, thank you're too kind. I've just been speaking with Dr Emma Shortus and Professor Andrew Walter. We've just been talking about politics, reflecting on politics in 2022 at the broader international scale. And thank you also to Frank Bongiorno, who joined me earlier. Thank you to all the people who have still been listening to my interview with Brendan Crabb, which is up on the podcast as a standalone interview. If you want scientific information on COVID, not political information, please go and listen to that interview. And also my interview with Rhina McIntyre the week later as well. Also, thank you to all who've been listening to this show for the last year. It wouldn't be anything without you listening, and I really appreciate all your comments. Judith Peppard will be filling in for me from the 3rd of January, and I'll be back in the seat on February the 7th, 2023. So thank you so much for joining me, and I'll see you next year. Have a lovely break, everyone. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense Podcast. 
Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.